I don't know if this has been your experience or not, but I have come to realize that sometimes church can be ugly. Sometimes church is just really messy. I've been in churches through the years. I've, I've heard stories in churches through the years of you know, fights and people yelling at each other and people not speaking to each other anymore. Uh, all kinds of disagreements and arguments. I read about one church recently that was getting into an argument about whether they should, they should keep the pastor or not. Now, if you're going to argue about something, that's something you should be arguing about, I think. That, now you're talking about some important stuff, right? But they, you know, whether you, whether they had such a volatile argument, they had to call the police. A couple people were stabbed. One person had a head injury from being hit by a metal chair. I mean, I have to admit, I have not seen violence to that level in the church before. It's just totally crazy. But the reality is, the church, despite what we want it to be, is imperfect. It's messy. It's their struggles. And that's because, quite frankly, people like you and me are a part of it. I mean, you know, we, we want the church to be perfect, even though it's filled with people who are imperfect. And, and the reality of, of this has been going on for a long, long time, probably since God's people have been God's people. Stuff's been happening. And now we come to this letter of Paul's to the church of Philippi, and something is going on there too. I mean, all the, all the letters are written for some kind of issue that the churches are dealing with. And we come to chapter 2, and Paul seems to intimate that there's a lot of disagreement among them, and, and he, he challenges them about that. And they're having difficulties, and what is his solution? Well, he starts out by saying, look, if, in verse 1, if... If Jesus means anything to you, if, quite frankly, if I mean anything to you, get along with each other. Stop doing this. Make up with each other. Be one in mind and spirit. And then beginning in verse 3, he begins to describe what he wants that to look like. And he says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests. But take an interest in others too. Great advice. Powerful stuff. I mean, in many ways, it's sort of psychology 101, right? I mean, you, if you want people to treat you better, you treat them better. If, if you want to get along with people, then don't treat them poorly. And, and every employer... Every person who is over a group of people would say, this is how I want you to act. This is how I want you to interact with each other. Don't fight with each other. Stop being so selfish with each other. Look out for each other's interests. I mean, it's the kind of thing that you would find kind of advice that could be easily taken and probably is wanted to be taken in any civic organization, any place of business, anywhere people come together. It reminds me of the, the book that came out in the late 1980s, uh, Robert Fulgham's book, Everything I Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. Anybody read that book? A few people. I thought that was a fascinating book. Kind of humorous. Here's what he says. You learn in kindergarten that you just take the rest of your life and this is it. Share everything. Play fair. Don't hit people. 
That's always a good one. Put things back where you found them. Clean up your own mess. Don't take things that aren't yours. Say you're sorry when you hurt somebody. Wash your hands before you eat. Flush. (laughs) Warm cookies and cold milk are good for you. Live a balanced life. Take a nap every afternoon. When you go out into the world, watch for traffic, hold hands, and stick together. Be aware of wonder. Great advice. And in a sense, that's kind of what Paul is saying if we stop at verse 4. If we stop at verse 4, Paul's really saying, work harder. Do better. Try harder. But he doesn't stop at verse 4. Because he's not just talking to a civic organization. He's not just talking to business people. He's not just talking to any group of people. He's talking to the church. And to the church, he says, it's not enough to want this advice that is really good. What you need is to have the mind of Christ. What you need is to understand is that to be the church that you're supposed to be, to solve these problems that you're having, have the mind of Christ in you. And when he talks about the mind of Christ, he doesn't just mean think like Christ, though that's where it starts. Or have the attitude of Christ, though again, that's where it starts. But it's having the mind of Christ, it's thinking like Christ, having the attitude of Christ that leads to the behavior of Christ. Because the truth is, if you don't behave this way, then people would have a pretty good argument that maybe you don't really think this way. And so Paul says it's the mind of Christ. And what does the mind of Christ look like? Beginning in verse 6. He says, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. What he's saying is that the mind of Christ is selflessness, self-emptying, risk-taking, Self-giving. He's saying all those opportunities that you have to grab your rights, what is rightfully yours, you don't do it. You let it go. Because that's how Jesus lived his life. And I think, in essence, he's saying to be a follower of Jesus is to live your life in such a way that you're on a trajectory to a cross. When you think about the decisions that we make, when you think about the the way that we treat each other, when you push that to its natural conclusion, if it's like Jesus, it's going to lead us to a cross. It's going to lead us to giving up, to death of ourselves. It's going to lead us to self-emptying kind of life. There are a lot of people who have talked about that kind of life through the years. Especially in our tradition, we talk about this thing of sanctification or holiness. And 
often it's used to describe this. And often this idea of sanctification and holiness, you, we get the impression that this is, for, this is for a select group of people. This is for people who, have, who are really, really hardcore about following Jesus. This is about people who are, who are really on the inner circle of fo- being a follower of Jesus. But I don't think that's reality. I think the truth is, living this way is what it means simply to be a follower of Jesus. It's not about an, some kind of elite Christian force of people. It, it's just being a Christ follower. You live with this mindset. I mean, Paul's really just saying what Jesus said. In, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says, if you, if you don't want to, to deny yourself and take up your cross, then you're not worthy of being my follower. In chapter 16, Jesus says, anyone who wants to follow me, not a select group of people, but anyone who wants to follow me must, must turn from their selfish ways, take up their cross and follow me. It's just the definition of what it means to be a Christ follower. And I think it has some bearing then on how we describe what it means to be a Christian. Because often when we talk about being a Christian, we often use to describe that as, well, this person is a Christian because they prayed this prayer. And praying the prayer is important and it's good and it's helpful and we all need to confess and we need to repent. That's a part of of, of the process. But it feels like that... Prayer is the end of our journey. When in reality, it's propelling us on the journey. And I think this is one of the things that people get confused about. To be a Christ follower is not about just believing right things. It's not just doing right things. But it's living our lives in such a way that... We are on a trajectory to the cross. I have to admit, I wish it wasn't that way. I don't want it to be that way. I'm reading this passage looking for loopholes. You know, I I want Jesus to say, well, you know, that was for the Philippians. But you guys don't need to worry about that. That was a special circumstance. They were dealing with some stuff. Yeah, that's their thing. You, you You just take a different perspective. I really want Jesus to say that. I want him to say, you don't have to do this. This doesn't have to be the way you live. But I don't sense that being the case. And you and I are continually faced in our relationships, because remember, this is really about relationships. We're faced with the the decision. Are we going to engage in our relationships as a part of our journey that is taking us toward a cross or something else. And we're continually being tempted to grab for what is rightfully ours, just as Jesus is. I can't even imagine how many thousands of times throughout his life, Jesus is face-to-face with a situation or a person or a circumstance where the temptation is to, to grab his godness. And to say... Wait a minute, you're you're not going to treat me like that. You're not going to say those things to me. I'm not going to let you get away with that for against me. I am God, and I'm going to show you that. And you really see it the last 24 hours of his life. 
He's in the garden and they come to arrest him. Everything in his being wanted to say, wait a second, you're not going to arrest me, I'm God. And then they, and, and then they beat him. And then they put nails in him. And then they hang him on a cross. And every one of those moments, you know the temptation is so real to say, stop. You don't understand who I am, and I'm going to help you understand who I am. And the ultimate temptation had to be as he's hanging from the cross, and the religious leaders, these hypocritical, evil religious leaders, are mocking him and saying, if you're really the son of God, come down and show us that. I got to tell you, if I actually got to the place of hanging on the cross, I'd come down. And I'll show you. Right? I mean, that's human nature. We all, would, we all want to do that. Because we all want to grasp at it. And Jesus doesn't. It's, it's the most courageous way in the world to live your life. There's nothing more courageous than not grabbing what is rightfully ours. Nothing more courageous than stepping back and saying, I have every right in the world to let those people know how valuable I am, how important I am, how much I know, how much I can do. I have every right in the world to claim all of the good stuff about who I am and to make sure they know that. It takes great courage to not do that. That's the call on our lives. And it's mainly in our relationships. I've often read this passage and thought to myself, okay, I think this means I surrender things to God. And certainly that's important, a part of it. But I, I tend to think of living this way as I, I give up things for God. I give more of my possessions away. I go places in the world God wants me to go. I, I, I do things that God wants me to do. And obviously, that's very important. But specifically here, Paul is saying, this is about how you relate to each other. Which may be more of a challenge for us. Because in the midst of these conversations we have, in the midst of committee meetings, in the midst of being the church... There are all kinds of opportunities for us to say, wait a second, you're not seeing how valuable I am. You're not seeing how important I am. You're not understanding how smart I am and how much I have to bring to this. And it doesn't mean that we don't share our opinions and we don't engage in the conversation as whatever we're talking about. But we do that in a way that isn't being driven by, look at me. And if we walk out of a meeting and we've accomplished what we need to, and no one is walking out thinking we're so awesome, that's okay. And I think most of this takes place not in these monumental moments of life that we want to think it does. I think it takes place in the commonness of every day. Just being with people. Fred Craddock says that when we talk about surrendering our life to Christ, we often think of it as if we brought a $1,000 bill and laid it at God's feet and said, here's my life. He says, I think 
more than likely what God will say to us when we do that is, take that $1,000 bill, go to the bank and cash it in for $1,000 worth of quarters. And you bring those quarters back and you spend your life giving out quarters. Because if you want to surrender to me, it's not just about a moment. It's about life. And it's often in the commonness of life. And it's with people in the commonness of life. And it's having a conversation with the neighbor kid when you'd rather tell him to get lost. And it's, and it's listening to people talk about their lives when you'd rather talk about yours. And it's not having to be the center of every agenda that comes along. It's just giving away this quarter here, 50 cents there, sometimes a dollar. But it's just in the everyday moments of life that if we think about it and we, and we watch it go to its natural conclusion, it's going to take us to a cross. I think this is how we were created to live. I think when God created human beings, this is a part of how we were created. In Genesis, it says that God created human beings in his image. And scholars have been debating for centuries, what does that mean? What what if the image of God is in us? And there are probably a number of things, but I think this is one of them. Because I think Jesus embodies the nature of God. Scripture says he is the perfect image of God. And I don't think Jesus exists in this in some form and then comes to earth and lives this way and then goes back to heaven and lives the way he used to live. I don't think his life here of selflessness and humility and self-emptying is, is just sort of a, an anomaly to who he really is. It's who he is. Because the opposite of these things don't sound much like the kingdom of God. Arrogance. Self-centeredness. Selfishness. Grabbing. Clutching. I don't think that describes who God is. I think this describes who God is. And so we are created in that image. And it's when sin entered the picture that we lost that. And, and God has been trying to help us understand that all through history. And Jesus is finally the perfect image of what it means to be God. And Paul says, this is what you were created to do, and this is what you should be. This is what it means to look like God. And I think when we get to heaven, this is how we're going to be with each other. Because again, what's the alternative to that? I think, I think it's heaven because... We all have the mind of Christ. It is what heaven is. It is having the mind of Christ and being in the presence of God with his mind and his attitude and his heart and his being. That's what it will be, which is probably why when Lewis writes The Great Divorce, he says there are people who don't want to go to heaven because heaven offers them nothing that they want. And when we pray, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven... This is a part of what we're praying. That the church would be like Christ. That we would so relate to each other like Christ that we would actually 
begin to resemble relationships in heaven. And I think this is part of what Paul is talking about in verses 9 to 11 when he talks about Jesus being exalted. It feels like he's saying it's a cause and effect. Because Jesus comes to earth, lives this way, when he goes to heaven, he doesn't have to do that anymore. I wonder if what he isn't saying is that both images are of the nature of Jesus as self-emptying, selfless, humble, risk-taking. The difference is, in verses 6 to 8, it's what that looks like in the midst of evil, in the midst of a world of opposition and, and power fighting against that being the reality. And in verses 9 to 11, we get a picture of what it looks like when that's been removed. What I find fascinating about this passage is that Paul drops this passage into the middle of a letter that's primarily calling people to live a life of joy. And he's saying, this is about, I want you to live a life of joy. I want you to rejoice over and over again. Rejoice, give thanks, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. And in the middle of this, all of this about rejoicing and celebrating who we are in God, he says, now, this is what it looks like in Jesus. And I think there's something about that that is telling us, while this feels like a burden, and it feels like drudgery, and it feels almost like a punishment to live your life in such a way that it's on a trajectory toward the cross. It feels like we've done something wrong, and so we're going to have to face this. But the truth of the matter is, it is the pathway to joy. It is the pathway to, to all that God wants to bless us with, because it is the pathway of Jesus. It is, it is moving toward what we are created to be. And Paul even writes a little bit later on in chapter 2, I will rejoice even if I lose my life, pouring it out like a liquid offering to God, just like your faithful service is an offering to God. And I want all of you to share that joy. You should rejoice, and I will share your joy. And I think what maybe the hardest thing for us is for me is to begin to see the call of this call of how we live really as as a great joy. That there is joy in being selfless. There is freedom in being selfless. There is freedom in, in relating to each other in this way. Does it create burdens for us and hardship? And do people mistreat us? Of course they do, just like they did Jesus. But even in the midst of that, there is joy. Because we are becoming more and more like we were created to be in the image of God. And we are experiencing more and more of who God is in us. You know, during the season of Lent, we, we think a lot about the cross, and we should. And we tend to think of the cross from the context of being so grateful for what Jesus has done for us. And we should. 
And all this week, the song has been going through my mind. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the cross, my friend. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the cross, my friend. I was just overwhelmed by, by the gift of what Christ has done for us. And we ought to be grateful. But in our gratitude, to hear the call of the cross too. And to recognize that the more positively we respond to that call, the more grateful we will be. And the more we will embrace all that God has done for us as we allow him to really shape us into this image of Jesus. It's what will enable us to be the church, to be the people of God we're called to be, to have the mind of Christ, the attitude of Christ, the spirit of Christ, to behave like Christ. Allows us to be the church that looks like Christ. Gracious Father, we want to thank you. Thank you for the cross. And thank you for the privilege of knowing the joy of selflessness. Pray that you will open our eyes to see. see all that we can be individually and corporately when we want the mind of Christ. Give us grace to live this truth. We pray this through Jesus. Amen.